0: Well, we have a statement that goes all the way back to the foundation, the beginning of the crux, and I think Sean's got it there for us. We're going to read this out loud together as kind of the, the foundation of what the crux was founded to be all about. And so uh, let's read this out loud. Here we go. Come ye broken, come ye poor, come ye needy, come ye outcast, come ye addict, come ye seeker, come ye atheist, come. Come. Come, ye pagan, come, ye lost, diseased, dying, confused, and lonely. Come, ye lost sinners. To the crux where we believe that Jesus is the answer to all, where his grace will be preached every week and his gospel will be the focal point of our ministry to the world. This is who we are. This is what we stand for. This is what we fight for. This is why we exist. This is our mission to declare to the world that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You know, last week I said to you that as we got started, that the environment, the culture, the kind of the experience of the crux rests on you. Um, We can create a worship experience. We can, someone can come and bring a message. Um, but the experience of life, the experience of friendship, the experience of encouragement, the experience uh, of a kind word—only you can do that. And I just want to remind each and every one of you. And you're going he- to. Th- this really thematically fits with the message for tonight. But the culture that you establish, the tone that you set, is the tone. <laughs> if this is a place that's welcoming, it's because you make it so. If everybody sits around waiting for someone else to be the one who welcomes them, well, we're going to have a lot of lonely people. But if everyone says, hey, I have a stake in this, I can set the, help set the tone or not, I can help create an environment, and everyone has a piece of ownership in that, wow, that's going to be a great place to be. I met Jesus when I was 16 years old. Um, I literally. I, I've shared some of my story. Uh, that's, I don't want that to focus on that tonight. That's not really what I want to talk about. But when I was 16, r- when I met Jesus, I had literally zero friends. Zero. That year when I turned 16, on my 16th birthday, I was sick in bed with mono. And it was during the school year. It's in February. And no one called because there was no one to call me. Because no one noticed that I was missing from school. And then I met Jesus. And it was Jesus in a group of high schoolers that helped me understand what the body of Christ is supposed to be about. And if a group of high schoolers can make another high schooler who is like where I was experience community, Surely, you all can create an environment together where no matter who walks through that door, they don't walk out that door without an encounter with Jesus through you. Does that make sense? I really want you to think and pray about that. Um, And my hope is that the messages that I have shared this summer, they're all disconnected from one another except for this one thing, that they all are an effort on my part to help you understand what it means to live biblically. (laughs) What it means the last time to lay down your life, to set your life aside, to count the cost of following Jesus by putting you second. Tonight we're going to talk about what it means to live authentically. And we're specifically going to focus on our speech, what comes out of our mouths, how we communicate, what is it that we say that makes us authentic. Now, we live in a world where there is less and less confidence in the church, right? I mean, in, in our culture, we are increasingly, as the church, being alienated from the culture at large. And there's insane things happening in the world right now. I mean, I hear crazy things like someone will say that evangelical Christians are more dangerous than Islamic terrorism. That That is just insane to hear things like that. But that's some of the comments that you hear. Part of the problem, there's, there's really two things that have fueled this. Oh, there's a lot of things, but two things that I want to mention. One is just the enemy. The enemy is diluting people's minds about what Jesus is really all about. That's number one. But number two the church has contributed to the way the world sees us, in part by living inauthentically. When we say we believe this, but we don't live in a way that matches that, the world goes, what are you talking, what do they call us? Hypocrites, right? That's what they say. Your life doesn't match what you say you believe. And because the church over the last several decades has invited people in, come on in, come on in, there's, there's no sense of counting the cost of following Jesus, it's all what you get from following Jesus. Okay, because it's become a consumeristic gospel. We have a lot of people in the church, more and more, who live less and less consistently, counting the cost for what it means to be a true follower of Christ authentically. My call to all of us is be who you say you are. If you say you follow Jesus, understand what that means, and then live like that. Authentic means to be genuine or real worthy of belief because of agreement with known facts or experience. In other words, you are authentic when you genuinely are real and your life is in agreement with what you say. The known fact of who you are and what you do is in agreement with what you say. That's authenticity. The authentic Christ follower, then, is someone whose faith is worthy of belief. I believe that your faith is true, that you say... Because of the agreement in known facts or experience with what they say they believe. When I look at your life, what you say and what you do, what you say you believe and what comes out of your mouth, all these things, they match up. They match up. And tonight I want to talk about what comes out of our mouths. Because I believe that few of us actually think about that whole process. Does anybody know anybody that like, has zero filter at all. It's like, whatever goes through their mind seems to make it out of their mouth without any sense of, oh, is that you, Rex, or you know someone? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, so the reality is that we all need to have a biblical filter so that what comes out of our mouth matches what the Bible has to say. So the passage, the, the, the idea of authenticity, is found in a verse that is an intro to this section of of God's word. It's found in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, and it says, "Therefore Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So picture the book of Ephesians. It's six chapters, and there's two parts. Chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6. Chapters 1 through 3 talk about all that we have in Christ. The great gifts of what it means to be in, in, in Christ Jesus. The incredible benefits of knowing Jesus. Chapters 4 through 6 are all about practical Christian living. In light of all that you have in Jesus. Chapter 4 verse 1 says, Because of all that, therefore live a certain way. And then the n- next three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, are all about how you and I should live. Very practical things. And we're going to talk tonight about a very practical, specific verse found in Ephesians 4, chapter, uh, uh, verse 29. And it says this, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it may give grace to those who hear. I submit to you that even the most off-the-charts introvert among us here today, whose perhaps job primarily causes them to engage with things, perhaps a computer, rather than people, is still even that person. Each and every one of us are largely social creatures who are marked and known for what comes out of our mouths. And I think the question that each of us needs to answer in the day-to-day as we move through life is what, comes, is what comes out of my mouth consistent? Is it reflective? Does it carry the same weight as the claims that I make about being a follower of Jesus Christ? Right now, you are in the process, you're in the season of life where you are establishing, more than ever, the patterns for the rest of your life. The way you think the way you speak okay let me just give you a little kind of little sidebar here i am trained in psychology that's my master's degree i worked in a psychiatric hospital for 10 years statistically by the time you're age 35 or 40 the reason why they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks isn't because it's actually factually true, but because it's unlikely to ever be true that that person is going to change. By the time you are that age, the ingrained neuropathways in your brain of stimulus and the response and how you handle life situations is so established, although God can do anything, the likelihood of change beyond those seasons of life are unlikely. You are in the perfect season of life to understand that what you're doing right this minute the way you think, if it's biblical and godly, the way you what you handle, the way you handle ungodly thoughts and replace them with godly thinking, the way you speak, the way you interact with people, you are setting the patterns right now, and you can change. You're not 50 years old. Those pathways of experience that get carved into our brains and lives are not set in stone. In the brains of people in their 20s. This is good news for you. The flip side of that, however, is you have to be self-evaluative. You can't just let whatever happens, happens. You can't just let whatever, the way you behave, the way you interact with others, the things that you say, you can't allow them to be untested, unevaluated, because then they will become patterns that you will look back on, and you realize you didn't want that pattern after all. And then that pattern, those patterns are reflective to the world. We have to acknowledge that in daily living, there are two primary tools that people use to identify our character and what we stand for. It is our behavior and it is our speech. And today we're going to talk primarily about our speech. And let me remind you, what comes out of your mouth is not limited literally to simply what comes out of your mouth. It's what you write, it's what you blog, it's what you tweet, it's what you text, all of that. That experience of, of you is what we would call what comes out of our mouth. James chapter 3 says a few things that are really intense about this. It says, starting at verse 5, The tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God, and from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. That's rough. That's some rough speech right there. That causes should cause each and every one of us to take a step back and go, Whoa, 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 whoa. Maybe you're in a season of relational calm right now in such a way that there isn't anything particularly noticeable that's coming from your mouth that raises a flag, a yellow flag, or certainly a red one. But what would happen if someone were to treat you in an unjust way, a friend lets you down, uh, a a boss who's unfair, a neighbor who's a jerk, uh, a store clerk who is rude, a boyfriend who breaks up with you Or a girlfriend who breaks up with you in a very unkind way. Well, let's look at that then. In terms of what comes out of our mouths. We often lash out and say things that are inconsistent with Christ. Our old self kind of proverbially rears its head. They've just kind of pounded on my last nerve, as it were. And most people wouldn't be surprised... Under those circumstances, for you to engage in such a way that perhaps is slightly uncoming, because after all, I'm only human. Now, let me say, I'm only human is code, for I can't be expected to live above my sin nature in the power of Christ. That's really what that means. Can I really be expected, I'm only human after all, to live in a way that's consistent with Christ, even under duress? I think so. I think we can. But I submit to you that in our environment here, and for many in this generation, last week we talked about anxiety uh, and the label that you all have received, whether you know it or not, whether you're willing to own it or not, as the anxious generation. Filled with anxiety. In that world, that last nerve, it's just a lot closer to the surface. So I want to talk through a few things, four things that this passage says about what comes out of our mouths, and then we'll land the plane, talk a little bit about life, our lives in our groups as we wrap up. The first one is eliminate unwholesome words. Eliminate unwholesome words, and you're like, I'm good about that. I don't cuss. Okay, well, that's not what it's talking about. Let's just say that. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. The foundational form of the word unwholesome relates to the idea of decay or rotting away. It's not life giving. It's not necessarily foul words, but words that are spoken in such a way that bring relational decay. Doctor Weist, who is a biblical scholar and theologian, says that it's about rotten, worn out, not fit for use, worthless, or simply bad words. Paul is setting up a contrast between words that promote decay and words that promote healing, growth, or strength, which we're going to get to in just a minute. And it's very important to understand this. When we're angry or wounded or offended, often our first response is to come back with equal force, words that promote decay in a relationship in the other person's soul. We want to prevail. We want to win in a battle of words. And in our hearts, we really want to retaliate. So Paul hasn't said anything yet about inappropriate language as such. He's just speaking about a way of communicating that promotes decay relationally. I want to talk for a minute about gossip. Um, in your season of life, you are as relational as you're ever going to be. I mean, young adults are, I mean, it's, it's because you have a, generally speaking, more discretionary time than those who are a little further down the road with uh, careers that have become burdensome and families, you know, children, and all this other kind of thing, you spend a lot more time with your friends in this season of your life, more than likely, than you were ever going to spend with friends in any other season of your life. That sheer volume of exposure sets you up for conversations that ultimately lead to, well, did you hear about so-and-so? Oh, Oh, uh, and, and it can be masked in real spiritual language. I think we really need to pray for so-and-so. Which really ends up being gossip than a true and honest, heartfelt desire to pray for someone in need. And I want to caution you that if there's ever a season in life where in a peer group, a group of peers, you're liable to hear the phrase, I just can't handle all the gossip. It's going to be right here. So how you speak to each other, how you speak about each other when they're not there, is huge. You don't have to be unwholesome to someone. You can be unwholesome about someone, which is just as bad, if not worse, than being unwholesome to them. Ephesians 5, later on. Verse 4 says, And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. And filthiness, well, that's dirty, obscene language. We, we all know what that means. Silly talk is it, the sense of a speech without forethought or wisdom. It's speaking in such a way that's kind of off the cuff. That's like, oop, that's the lack of filter person. Of course, coarse jesting, you understand to be jokes that are inappropriate. I also want to give a word of caution about sarcasm. Now, uh, I am the master of sarcasm, and it always it hasn't always worked well for me, okay? Um, this was especially true right when I became a pastor. Somehow, for most people in the church, pastor and sarcasm don't go together very well. So I ended up with more reconciliation meetings in my early years as a pastor than I could. Okay, so and, um, you ladies may appreciate this. <coughs> At some point in your journey down the road, there was a young couple that that I knew. They had just gotten engaged, and she was all about showing off her ring, walking around showing people her her, her ring. And with the absolute most straight face I could ever muster, I, 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 I held her hand, and I looked at her ring, and I said, that is the most beautiful cubic zirconia I have ever seen oh my gosh, you would have thought, I mean, I mean, come on, this is a joke, right? I mean, could you tell it was a joke? I mean, really, you know? Well, this was not a joke to these people. And the, the, the kind of the journey of toward reconciliation with them, <laughs> because pastors don't have sarcasm in their repertoire of, you know, interactive skills, uh, it was bad. I mean, it was just nuclear. Mm-mm-mm. Did Jesus joke around with the disciples? I'm not exactly sure. The Bible doesn't say a whole lot about that. However, there is one passage in Mark chapter 3. It says, in James, the the son of Zebedee and John, the brother of James, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder or sons of tumult. In other words, these guys were like bulls in a china shop. They were just like They probably had no filter, right? I mean, they were just causing all kinds of stuff. So I think Jesus gave them a nickname. Oh, here they come again. You know, those bull in a china shop brothers. Sarcasm can indeed be a sharp and often satirical or ironic utterance designed to cut or give pain. Sometimes it's not. Your discernment is critical. I remember a couple of years ago, I was preaching uh, over at the Prince William, what was, what was once the Silver Spring Campus. That now merged with the Bethesda Campus, the Montgomery County over there, so you know the, the, the Silver Spring Campus. And there was this sound man that was one, of, well actually was one of the guys in the band who was huge. I mean, and he was cut, ripped. It was unbelievable. And I walked up to him, and I said, you know, dude, and, and I'd never met him before. And I said, I really want to cur- encourage you to start working out. It is so sad to see how you've let yourself go this way. And we became fast friends. I mean, it was like he's like that is hysterical. And you know, so so you have to discern the environment in which sarcasm works and in which it doesn't. And I have learned through many a mistake where it doesn't work. Because really, what I was saying to him was a. Was a bit of a compliment wasn't it wasn't that the the, the the core of what i was saying so it wasn't sarcasm meant to cut it was really kind of a, an, a a left-handed compliment that was like dude you are huge you need to discern the difference a follower of jesus christ one who is living an authentic life who practices what they preach and what they say they believe in what they actually live are the same is a person who eliminates hurtful, thoughtless, and filthy speech from their lives. These words bring decay to themselves, to other people, and to relationships. And authentic followers of Jesus don't do that. But we don't stop there. Eliminating these things is important, especially in a world that has loosened its moral fiber But Paul continues on with some additional encouragements. The second one is, first, we remove that kind of unwholesome language. The second one is that we discern the need of the moment. It says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word, here it is, as good for edification, according, excuse me, according to the need of the moment. What comes out of our mouths should be the result of our discerning and effective assessment of what needs to be said at this moment. Our world, your school, and no offense to your families, but many families don't train us to be discerning, to assess what's happening and choose to say something that is according to the need of the moment. It's like, wow, that sounds like a lot of work. It can be. But you get better at it when you think about it. Paul is saying that it is our responsibility to discern what other people need in any given situation. What I've discovered in my work with people, especially in marriage counseling, is that people want to be able to say whatever they want to say, however it comes out, and it's the job of the other person to sort it all out. No, 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 no. That's not the way that works. And it requires that we are aware of our own selfish filters that cause us to ineffectively assess a situation. What's going on for my friends? What's going on for my boss? What's going on for my coworkers? What's going on for that customer? That clerk in the store. Sound overwhelming? Can be when Philippians 2.3 tells us that we are to regard one another as more important than ourselves, it is part of what God is expecting of us in order to do that. Paul is simply saying that a follower of Jesus Christ who has an identity in Christ, who is seeking to live consistently with what they say they believe, are skilled at developing the ability of effectively discerning the need of the moment in the lives of other people around them and says the appropriate thing i got to tell you, there's a lot of situations. I don't feel like doing this. You know, I've had a hard, long day at church. I've been dealing with, you know, crazy people who are blowing up their lives or whatever it happens to be. And I walk through the door at home, and I have no idea what's been going on all day with my wife and the kids. But the last thing I want to do is discern the need of the moment. I'm tired. I've had a challenging day too. And often I come home to the, and, and suddenly realize that something's going on. People are edgy or whatever, and I don't have any history. I've made a few mistakes in this moment in the past. Walk in, kids are acting a certain way, and I start to intervene. Without any knowledge of what's going on, I'm going to take charge. I'm going to be the man. Right. And then my wife's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm just trying to help. And she's like, well, stop trying, because you're not wor- it's not working. I haven't assessed the situation effectively to say the right word in the need of the moment. And your bad mood or your difficult experience in life or whatever it happens to be does not give you the right to walk into a different situation with your friends or coworkers or whatever, fail to assess that situation and bring your junk into that situation and be ineffective. No, no, no. This is not acceptable. So first, we eliminate unwholesome speech. Second, we discern the need of the moment. And then thirdly, we then provide the edifying word. We provide the edifying word according to the need of the moment, it says. Edification, that fancy Bible-sounding word, simply means building. It's a construction word. It means making more able. In other words, if you, when you are in a situation, to edify means to build into the situation a support structure with your words. You are shoring up something. Buttressing up, perhaps. That's what edification means. I like the phrase, make more able. Do you know you have the capacity to help others become more able in their situation by applying the right scripture, the right encouraging word, the prayer that they might need. You are enabling them. You're shoring them up. You have that power in the Holy Spirit. You have that power. And we are called upon by the Lord as followers of Jesus to play that role. But all too often many of us are just passive. We we maybe we accurately assess a situation, but 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 feeling like we are empowered to jump in and say the right thing at the right moment, that seems above us or beyond us or not my business or something. And God tells you that it is. And you do have the capacity in his spirit to do this. Okay, let's take an example. Maybe you're in a store, maybe you're at like Target or Wegmans or whatever and you're getting terrible customer service. You show up at, you're gonna return an item, let's say, at the customer service counter, and you are getting pathetic customer service. And as a bold American, your first response is to stand up for your rights and to get what you deserve. You're the customer after all. You're always right as the customer, and you shouldn't have to stand for this. Isn't that kind of our, what, what we feel like we've, our, our culture wants to empower us to do? Well, let's just think for a moment. Maybe the clerk behind the counter who's been a jerk has been a bit of a jerk because her husband walked out that morning. She's fearful that she's going to lose her home. She's not prepared to be a single parent. With her car kind of on the blink just a bit, she fears not having adequate transportation to be able to get to her job, and she can't afford to lose her job. What if that's what's happening? And what if instead of demanding better customer service, maybe we say something like this. He says, you know, you don't seem to be having a really good day today. As a matter of fact, you seem like you're having a bad day. I don't think our interaction has gone particularly well. And before you can finish your statement, she tears up. And you say, you know what, take your time, it's okay. And as she pulls herself together and completes the transaction, you say, you know, I'm going to pray for your day today. What if, what if that was the interaction? What if instead of assuming the worst about someone or demanding my rights as the customer or whatever it is, we assess the situation differently? Is it possible that they're just a jerk because they are? That's That they're just a jerk? Yes, maybe. But what if they're not? What if they're not? And what if you take the time to speak into the situation in a way that brings life, that brings empowerment, that brings courage? Is your primary goal as a follower of Jesus Christ to reflect Jesus and his priorities, considering others more important than yourselves like he did for us? How did Jesus respond to us when we were alienated from him and enemies of God? He died for us. That's what the Bible says. It doesn't mean that we fail to speak the truth. It doesn't mean that we don't confront someone in love. Ephesians 4.15, in this very same context, says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ. Truth without love is brutal. Love without truth is vacuous. Truth and love together bring maturity. That is for the need of the moment. So first we eliminate unwholesome words. Then we discern, assess the need of the moment. Third, we provide the edifying word. And fourth, he throws in there that then Our words would bless those who listen. Not just the person who we are responding to. It's bless those who hear. It's everyone. Those who receive the news, who pay attention to. That's what that means. It benefits everyone who hears. Not just the person who it's directed to. Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech always be filled with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will will know how you should respond to each person. By contrast, the words that come from our mouths should not promote rottenness or decay, but health and life and healing. We could do an entire study on what it means to be salt. That's a phenomenal study, and you should do it sometime. But let me ask you a couple questions as we get ready to wrap up here. Are you the most encouraging person that people around you know? If if you picked a random person in your life and we asked them, list of all the people in your life, who are the people who speak life? Who are the people who seem to know just what to say? Are you the person for other people around you who seems to just know the right thing to say at the right time? Is that what people would say of you? Developing the skills and the power of the Holy Spirit is critical. No no one is naturally good at this. No one is naturally good. Sometimes I just feel like the Holy Spirit leads me exactly what to say, and then other times it's usually at home with my wife. What just came out of my mouth, I'm like, can I try that one again? And she'll be like, yes, why don't you do that? I got a do-over on that one. A good friend of mine's name is Charles Martin, and he is an author. He writes novels. It's his livelihood. He knows about words. And he says this. He says, of the six million species on the planet, only human beings make language, words. What's more, in the evidence of the divine, we string these symbols together and then write them down where they take on a life of their own and they breathe outside of us. Your words in the lives of other people will take on a life of their own. If you are unkind or you speak unwholesomely, you speak words that bring decay, that, those words create a life that enter into a person. And long after you've gone, that life lives on for better or for worse. In reality, even after all these years in walking with Christ, there's still parts of me that are very insecure. And it's not uncommon for me to get down a message. This past weekend, I preached for the church here, and it's not uncommon for me to get off the stage and go, ooh, I wonder how that went. Did did anybody, did, did did it hit home? Was it helpful? You know. And then I get an email from someone. And I try not to be a people pleaser. My, my desire is to please God, not people. Please God and other people will benefit. But i got to tell you, when someone sends me an email that says, wow, the Lord really used that message to shape my life, I'm like, yes, thank you, Jesus. Not for the praise of Jim Sup, but for the praise of God. That the words that, are, that he's using through me are actually effective to someone. words okay check this out words are the paint that we use to apply brush strokes to the canvas of the lives of other people picture everyone else's life as a canvas and when you speak your words are painting on their canvas and the question is what are you painting What mark are you leaving on their canvas, their life, with the brushstroke of that word? And let me also say this. I think there is no better group for this passage of Scripture to apply. And it's 1 Timothy 4.12, and it says, Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young but set an example for the believers in what? Speech. In conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Okay, so you don't have all the life experience in the world. You may not have all the wisdom in the world to apply to every situation. You're getting there. But you can be an example. What if it was the young people in our congregation who were known for their Ability to apply the right word at the right moment. Man, we love having those guys in our congregation. They're awesome. You know, Forget the old stodgy people who are jaded by life, right? You guys set the tone. Let this be a place where people say, oh, I love going there. These guys are awesome. I, I always feel so built up when I go there. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the needs of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Four things. Eliminate unwholesome words. Discern the need of the moment. Provide the edifying word. And consequently, the ripple effect of blessing those who hear. I would love it if every single one of you would be able to humbly stand before the Lord and hear, you know, you are the most encouraging person in your peer group. That's true of you. Man, if you had that reputation, what else do you need? They love Jesus, and that Jesus authentically flows out of them in the words that they use. All right, I'm going to pray. And then we are going to have a bit of a discussion, discussion questions. I They're not going to be on the screen. I've got them right here. And if you would keep those those four things on the screen, that's we're going to revolve around that. So, Father, thank you so much. Thank you for this opportunity to be together. I thank you for every person in this room. I thank you for their life. I thank you for what you're doing in their life. I know many are experiencing some challenges. I don't know what those things are, but I pray, Lord, that you would... Help them with that, that you would walk with them through that, and that in this community, they would find the support and encouragement that they need. Father, I pray that each one would endeavor to authentically follow Jesus by their speech. That what comes out of our mouths, Lord God, would be reflective of what we say we believe. Lord, we're commanded to even love our enemies. Wow. That feels impossible. And if we're commanded to do that, how much more should we be skilled in the power of the Holy Spirit in a room full of friends to be able to speak words that bring life? Father, help us. Help us when we don't do this to give us a check in our spirit. Please, Holy Spirit, convict us of that. Bring it to the surface. If we need to apologize or ask for forgiveness, Lord, I pray that we would be always willing to do that. Father, so thank you. Thank you for this time to be together. And uh, Lord, I give you the crux. I pray, Lord God, that you would just explode this room with the love of Christ. And that the reputation would spread throughout our entire region. That this is a place where people can be exactly who they are, wherever they are. Loved in the name of Jesus. Walked alongside of in the things of Christ. And find the encouragement that's necessary. Lord, we love you. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen.